Welcome to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast, the show where brilliant professionals share how to sharpen the universal skills required to flourish at work. Enjoy more career fun, wins, meaning, and money with your host, Pete Mikaitis. Hello, and thanks so much for joining us here for episode 542 with Laura Wong. It is a new era, February 02 in 2020 in which we're now going to have two episodes per week with the intent of having the same amount of resources on fewer episodes, increases quality. So I hope you love what you hear from Laura and the two guests a week to follow now on Mondays and Thursdays. Laura's going to share how you can build your edge to turn adversity into advantage. You'll learn one, why the myth of hard work can be so dangerous. Two, how unfair perceptions can quietly limit your career and what to do about them. And three, a formula to turn embarrassments and bitterness into enrichment. So if you want to check out the show notes or the transcript or the links to items we've referenced, drop on by awesomeatyourjob.com slash ep542 or tap the episode notes or description in your podcast app player of choice to check out those resources that away. Now here's Laura's story. Laura Wong is a professor at Harvard Business School who specializes in studying interpersonal relationships and implicit bias in entrepreneurship and in the workplace. Her research has been featured in several publications like the Financial Times, the Wall Street Journal, USA Today, Forbes, and Nature. She was also named as one of the 40 best business school professors under the age of 40 by Poets and Quants. Laura has also previously held positions in investment banking, consulting, and management in several companies such as Standard Chartered Bank, IBM Global Services, and Johnson & Johnson. She received her MS and BSE in electrical engineering from Duke, an MBA from INSEAD, and a PhD from the University of California, Irvine. Big thanks to Laura for sharing her wisdom with us, and big thanks to our sponsors. Check them out. And big thanks to our sponsor, Acorns. Acorns makes it easy to start automatically saving and investing for your future. You don't need a lot of money or expertise to invest with Acorns. In fact, you can get started with just your spare change. Acorns recommends an expert-built portfolio that fits you and your money goals, then automatically invests your money for you. NerdWallet.com, whom I love on these sorts of matters, gives Acorns a whopping 4.7 stars and says, quote, if you want to make the most of your spare change, there's no better place to do that than Acorns. Head to acorns.com slash awesome or download the acorns app to start saving and investing for your future today and we got a legal disclaimer here it may not be representative of all clients tier one compensation provided compensation provides an incentive to positively promote acorns view important disclosures at acorns.com awesome investing involves risk including the loss of principal please consider your objectives risk tolerance and acorns as fees before investing acorns advisors llc acorns is an sec registered investment advisor brokerage services are provided to clients of acorns by acorn securities llc member at finra sipc for more information visit acorns.com now, here's Laura. Laura, thanks so much for joining us here on the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. Well, I'm excited to dig into your wisdom, but first I want to hear what you're allowed to tell us about your first job offer out of college being to work at the CIA. <laughs> How did you know that? <laughs> we, we dig. We dig deep in your background. Maybe not as deep as the CIA did. But, I uh, <laughs> Well, no, I mean, you must have an in with the CIA. Most people don't know that, that that was my... Yeah, that was my very first job offer, actually. And, um, you know, it was, I wasn't exactly sure what it was about, to be honest, because I was an engineer and I had applied for this role. Um, and it turned out to be a different role than I had expected. Well, suffice to say that that's what, what I was offered. And I, I sort of, um, 
had a conversation with a couple of my my family members about it and I essentially was forbidden from taking that job. Oh. So, so that was the <laughs> end of that. Yeah, yeah. What are the key drivers that, that lead to that being off the table immediately? It was things like they trust you with a gun. They would trust you with a gun, you know, like, um, you know, things like that. I mean, I, I speak multiple languages and they weren't quite sure exactly what situations I was going to be placed in, um, what kind of counterintelligence projects I was going to be involved in. And so, um, you know, instead I became a professor. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Well, I guess some professors still do get recruited into intelligence agencies, depending on what they study. True, or you never know. Maybe that's just my cover. (laughs) That is a good one. I mean, interpersonal relationships and implicit bias doesn't sound as much like something that they would recruit for, but maybe. Yeah, well, you know, every so often, you know, when my husband is being particularly difficult or something, I'll say, you know, just be careful because you don't know. I might still be in the CIA. (laughs) <laughs> Certainly. Well, <laughs> well, so the intrigue is sown. And so uh, I love the forced segue. That I'm also intrigued you know, by the work that you've been doing, talking about um, getting an edge. And so I want to hear maybe we're going to cover a lot of good stuff, but perhaps we could lead off with what's perhaps one of the most surprising and fascinating and counterintuitive discoveries you've made about how people successfully attract attention and support from others. Yeah, you know, I think the most surprising thing that I've discovered over the last decade or so of, of my research is that how, how very many people, um, from just a young age were taught that success is about hard work. All right. To just put your head down and keep working hard and that your hard work will speak for itself. Um, and you know, the thing is, is that hard work is critical, right? I would never say that it's not critical. Um, but, you know, I think there comes a time when people realize that hard work alone is not enough and that hard work leaves us feeling frustrated. And we hear so many super successful people, you know, we ask people that are at the top of their game, people who are CEOs of companies on the top management teams, people who are, you know, Olympians and, um, and in professional sports, and you ask them the secret to their success, and they will inevitably say something along the lines of, you know, it's hard work, just keep working hard. But that's what often leaves us frustrated because we can see how much effort we're sometimes putting in and how much hard work and how even when we put in all that hard work, the rewards seemingly sometimes go to somebody else. Um, and, and we realize that it's often about the signals and the perceptions and the stereotypes of others that are actually dictating, um, who gets the rewards and who gets those coveted outcomes. And so I think that's something that I've realized is that we all sort of have this implicit understanding of that, but yet we keep telling this narrative around just keep working hard, keep doing your thing and just keep working hard. Certainly. Well, I'd say that adds up to me in terms of that sounds true, but you've got more than just anecdotal stuff. Could you share some of your most compelling 
evidence or data out there that shows this is absolutely a big force affecting professionals all the time. Yeah. I mean, I've studied this in a range of different contexts with a range of different, you know, qualities and characteristics, because I wanted to see how, you know, how much we could push this, how much this could hold. Right. So I found, for instance, that people who have an accent are much less likely to get hired for top, top, you know, executive level positions. They're less likely to get raises. They're less likely to get promotions. They're less likely to get funding for their ventures, even when we control for all other factors, right? The, the type of venture it is, what industry it is. It's in, um, overwhelmingly people who have an accent, um, have this, have this negative, uh, have this sort of disadvantage. We see this with women. Women are only receiving 2% of the venture capital financing out there. They're like, they're less likely to get raises, less likely to have the same, um, salary for the same position. Um, a host of different things. I've studied this with gender, race, class, ethnicity, sexual orientation across a whole different host of things. Probably the most appalling or, or surprising one to me was when, um, um, a couple of my, my colleagues and I wanted to try and find a context in which bias and disadvantage should not occur, where we should see no difference at all. And so what we decided to look at was people who were suffering from heart attacks and were in the emergency room. And we figured, you know, this is a situation, this is an instance where, you know, the physicians, the emergency room physicians, their only job is to save that patient, right? Regardless of their gender or regardless of other factors. But indeed, we found again that when women were having heart attacks, they were much less, they were more likely to die from heart attacks when they were being treated by male physicians than when they were treated wow. by, by female physicians. And so it was this, this amazing sort of revelation that even in life or death situations, we're seeing the, the impact of signals and perceptions and ways of communicating and how that has, how that it has an impact. But I will, I should say also that it's not just men, for example, that are discriminating against women. I find in venture capital and in entrepreneurship, um, female investors and male investors are both equally likely to bias against, um, women entrepreneurs in a host of different ways. Well, yeah, that's so intriguing. And I could just imagine all kinds of contexts and all sorts of combinations of times in which folks are discriminated against. I'm trying to imagine sort of the reverse is where I thought you were going with. I think men might be discriminated against when folks are hiring a nanny. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So, this is where I talk a lot about everybody yeah. has something. Like everyone has something. We tend to think a lot about the 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 typical host of the you know, the typical cast of characters, gender, race, ethnicity, class, sexual orientation, religion, but everybody has everything. Everyone is susceptible to the perceptions and the stereotypes of others. Um, if you go into any situation, what happens is that you are being perceived by your counterpart and it's based on their background and their experiences and your background, and your experiences. And so every time you go into a different situation, when you change one thing, 
whether it's the context or the person that you're interacting with, those perceptions will change as well. And so, you know, we are all susceptible to these sort of first impressions and stereotypes and obstacles um, that others pre- present on our behalf. And I'd love to get a sense, and it's okay if you don't have every data point, you know, right off the top of your head, but maybe just a quick sense for the order of magnitude here in terms of like with the accent, you know, for example, or, or whatever example, you happen to know the numbers. Is this like a 4% difference or like a 40% difference? No, or, or we're more? talking 30 to 40% differences. No kidding. Yeah. And it's very, very, you know, it's robust in terms of repeated over different, different contexts. And, you know, the interesting thing about that, which is really sort of where this book came from is that for the last decade, I had been studying inequality and disadvantage and people who are underestimated. And it started to get really depressing in the sense that I saw all of these disparities and all of these disadvantages. And people would sort of ask me these questions around, well, what can we do about it, right? Is there a way that we can prevent against these disparities. And I didn't have the answers. And so really what I set out to do, and over the last couple of years, what I've tried to do is to figure out, like, are there things that people can do? Are there strategies that people can take to sort of inoculate against these biases and flip these signals and perceptions and stereotypes in your favor? Um, and I found indeed we could, that there are ways to flip stereotypes and obstacles in our favor, and then we can find and create our own edge. So, you know, in the example of the person, if people with, with the accent, what I found, for instance, was that we typically think that people who have an accent, um, are less, are, are not able to communicate as well. But in fact, it's not about communication, right? When I, um, did blind studies where I had some people with accents and some people without accents giving, pitching their, their ventures. I found that the people with accents were just as likely to communicate as much information, if not more. Um, and people were just as likely to comprehend and understand what their company was about, if not more. Instead, it was things around perceptions that we made about people with accents. Things like, the fact that they may not, you know, we would perceive them as being not as interpersonally influential or not as good at team interactions or being a team player, um, not able to think outside the box or be as innovative. And so preventing against these things, when we had those same people with accents go into an interview situation and say things like, let me give you an example of a time when I fought for resources for my team. Or let me tell you about a time when I didn't stop until I had closed the deal, right? Hence, showing how interpersonally skilled they really were. That actually prevented against these negative outcomes. Intriguing. Okay. Well, so then that's a rather particular instance. You have folks with accents trying to acquire venture capital money, you know, sharing particular stories that combat where the bias is going. Can you share with us to the extent that it's possible, what are some of the best recipes in terms of, hey, if you have this adversity, you know, here's what you do to turn that into that advantage? Yeah. So, I mean, there's so many things embedded just within how we do this, which is number one, you know, there's, it's really the more that you make it authentic and recognize the way in which you are being perceived, the better, the more equipped you are to stop and redirect, right? That's really the key is when you realize that somebody is perceiving you in a certain way, 
is stopping that sort of perception and redirecting it to the perception that they should be having of you. Um, and, you know, I would love, you know, people also often want sort of, what are the 10 steps to doing this? And I wish I could give them like a recipe or like the 10 steps to do this, but it's so personal in terms of how you're being perceived, who that other person that is perceiving you is, um, and how you redirect that in, in sort of the best, in, in sort of the best way. But that's really essentially what it is, is knowing yourself really well and being able to know where your strengths are, trusting and relying on your strengths as well as your alleged weaknesses and turning those underestimated strengths upside down to succeed in both business and in life. Okay. Well, so what are some of the best practices to go about decoding that stuff in terms of how you may be perceived? Yeah. I mean, so there's a number of different things that you can do. I mean, I talk a lot about, I talk a lot in the book around knowing what your basic goods are and your basic goods. Those are really the things that those are like your superpowers, the things that you're really good at that, that really make you who you are. Um, you know, for example, you could be somebody who is really hardworking and trustworthy and compassionate. And you take somebody else who's really hardworking and trustworthy, but maybe isn't compassionate. And it totally changes things. It makes you a completely different person, even though two out of the three of those, those traits very much embody you. It's understanding things like that. And then it's understanding that when you're engaging with someone else that that those aspects those traits of yours are going to interact with with that other person so creating and gaining an edge is really edge stands for sort of the framework um for this perspective around how you can you can gain that advantage for yourself the e is for enrich and that's those pieces that are your basic goods. How do you enrich? What are do you, what do you bring to situations? Um, what is the value that you provide to other people? The D is for delight. How do you delight others? Because often, even though you, even if you know how you enrich and the value you provide to other people, you don't have the opportunity. Like we don't belong to the right groups. We don't belong to the right networks. And so we don't even have the opportunity to show how we enrich or provide value. So your ability to delight really is your way of getting that, getting that entrance, getting that opportunity. And then once you get that opportunity, G is for guide guiding those perceptions of others so that you can continue to show how you enrich and provide value. And finally, the last E is for effort. And effort and hard work comes last in this, um, in this framework because, you know, we often think that effort and hard work should come first, that it comes first and that it'll then speak for itself. But in fact, that's where we get very frustrated, where we don't know how we enrich and how we delight and how we guide. And when we do know those things, that's when our effort and our hard work works harder for us. Mm-hmm. Well, and so that I'd love to get your view in terms of to gather this self-awareness. Are you sort of interviewing people, doing 360 degree surveys, just sort of asking your good friends and family sort of what's maybe the intelligence gathering look like in practice? This is a sort of continuous process, right? There's no sort of easy solution to this. There's a different, there's a number of different ways that I sort of present this. One way is by following patterns and looking for patterns in your life. I talk about this a lot as life rhymes, 
right? So your life really rhymes. And when you're able to look for these patterns, things that maybe, you know, you had this feeling as a child and, um, and you weren't sure exactly what that was, but it either made you uncomfortable or didn't sit well with you or somebody had said something to you or had interpreted you in another way, in some way. And then a, a couple years later, you might have a similar situation where you feel that same type of feeling, you know, something didn't sit well. You start to develop an understanding and an awareness of, of what those sorts of things mean, right? Mm-hmm. So, yeah. That's one way that we implicitly start to get an understanding. Um, the other sort of way is that it's much more explicit. And I always say that anybody can learn how to do this. Anybody can learn how to really have that authentic self-awareness, but not everybody is willing to. Right. Everyone is able to, but not everyone is willing to. And the reason why not everyone is willing to is because it does mean putting yourself out there and asking for that uncomfortable feedback from people, putting yourself out there and allowing yourself to to have the humility and also be embarrassed right? I, I talk a lot about how being embarrassed is so key to growth in our lives and, and having this real understanding. Because a lot of times we'll be in situations and something will happen and we'll be, you know, it'll, it won't go right. It, it won't go the way we expected, or we'll sort of be, you, you know, we'll be embarrassed about, about it. And then we'll say, never again. We won't ever put ourselves in a situation like that because we don't ever want to feel that way again. That just made me uncomfortable and I didn't like it, especially when the stakes are really high. But when we push through in those moments of embarrassment is a lot of revelation. And there's a lot of revelation about ourself and why we felt uncomfortable and what it was that made us feel uncomfortable um, and how we can sort of go go past that in the future. And, but sometimes it takes multiple times where we're, we're embarrassing ourselves in the same sorts of situations before we learn how life rhymes. And so it's, mm-hmm. it's sort of those types of situations. There's, and I mean, there's also this, this element of, you know, we've all been burned before. We've all had people who have you know, that, you know, it's, it's amazing how you can ask pretty much anyone to name an instance in which somebody or some situation, you know, still bugs you. Like you still have a chip on your shoulder because that person wronged you, um, or burned you so badly. Like within seconds, we can, we can bring up two to three, at least examples of situations where we still feel bitter or we feel jaded, or we still have a chip on our shoulder because we still feel wronged, right? Those sorts of situations, when we really allow ourselves to experience that bitterness and think about how does it, how is this making me bitter and how can it make me better, right? Let it make you better, not bitter. Um, That's also a situation where we can learn a lot about ourselves and who we really are and those perceptions that others have of us. Well, yeah, that is intriguing in terms of like, if you feel super bitter and wronged, I mean, I think that I'm right with you. It's like that is indicative that, hey, there's a deeply held value here that you think has been flagrantly violated. And by sort of digging into that a little bit, you can kind of deduce 
what that is. Totally. So, That's yeah. exactly it, right? Because it still leaves us feeling that way. There is something there. There is something substantive there that tells us a lot about our deeply embedded you know, beliefs and values and what we really care about. But instead, we sort of avoid those because they're so painful. And we sort of chalk it up to, you know, frustration because often those are the instances where our hard work didn't speak for itself. And somebody else sort of wronged us or, or, you know, we, our hard work didn't speak for itself. Our hard work was not enough. It left us frustrated. It didn't, it didn't go according to how we think things should be. There's this myth of meritocracy. And for some reason, um, that was the meritocracy was violated. And it tells us about our values and how we think, you know, the world, the orderly world should be and how things should work. Uh-huh. Well, yeah. So I'm thinking about my own life and examples, but I'd love it if you could share some cool stories here in which someone came to terms with some situations that were embarrassing or caused bitterness and what they learned and took away and were enriched from those when they really dug in. When I talked about sort of life rhymes, you know, there's there's multiple instances where, you know, I didn't advocate for myself, right? Because either, either because of inexperience or because I, I didn't know better. And then later on, something else happened that was really similar. And I sort of learned how to advocate for myself, but then advocated in the wrong way. And then, you know, you sort of, you sort of learn, um, you, you learn through, through the years. I mean, I think it still stings every time I read about people who, you know, frivolous lawsuits, people who, um, lose lawsuits because they're either, they don't have the resources or the know-how or, you know, the people, it, it, it doesn't seem always like justice is being served. It seems like the people who are getting out on the right side of things are the ones who, um, had some sort of secret inside understanding or had the, the resources and the money to continue, um, hiring the best lawyers until, until the other person couldn't sustain it anymore. Um, you know, just it's, it's these instances where you, um, like for me, loyalty is so huge. And so, instances where I really gave my all to somebody and, and someone took advantage of that or instances where I had somebody's best interest at heart. And, but then they were very willing to, for their own personal gain, even just a little bit of personal gain, um, create huge disadvantages for others. Right. So, um, and, and, and those sorts of situations, I mean, I, I think I'm, I'm, I'm speaking on behalf of situations that lots of people in the world have had. Mm-hmm, certainly. And then can we sort of hear the conclusion of that in terms of, all right, so there you felt it, you noted it, you captured it. And then what? Well, you know, I think the painful part of this is that you don't, you don't win. You don't win everything, right? Um, and you only win when you, when you take these experiences and like I said, you let it make you better, that you, allow it to inform you in some way so that in the future you can try and flip things in your favor. The the tough part of this is that, you know, it's because it's so often about the signals and the perceptions and the stereotypes that other people have of us. It's these soft things that are really, are really the poison, right? But at the same time, because they're the soft things, they also become the anecdote, 
We're able to shift things and, and reposition them and flip them in our favor. We're not able to do it in the same way when things are, when it's the hard anecdotal sort of things. Um, and so just like those, those signals and perceptions are the things that are leading to disadvantage. So too, can we flip those things in our favor? Mm-hmm. Well, so, and I'd love it if possible, if we could maybe zoom out a bit. So, you know, much of the work you mentioned is certainly getting that deep knowledge of yourself and then your potential, how you're being perceived. Are there any things that you see just show up again and again and again that are maybe nearly universal in terms of here's some easy little things that just about all of us should start doing or stop doing to help positively influence how we're being perceived? You know, a lot of it is about recognition. A lot of it is about going into situations and, and realizing that, um, you know, people are going to, to have these perceptions. But at the same time, um, I think it's really important to understand that people are very complicated and varied and, embracing the fact that there is not just one version of each person. And what I mean by that is that it's very easy to go into a situation and somebody says something. And then all of a sudden we equate that person with that statement and, and personify that person as everything that that statement encompasses rather than sort of seeing it as just one aspect or one facet of that person and understanding that they are also very complicated sort of people. I mean, I think we can all identify situations in which we, you know, when we said something and it came out, it, it, it came out in a way that we didn't intend for it to come out. And mm-hmm. we sort of think, oh, I hope that that person didn't misinterpret it, or I hope they didn't think that I meant this. Um, uh, but we don't think the same when we, when somebody else says something to us that perhaps has offended or that, you know, the, you know, so we don't, we don't think, you know, perhaps they didn't mean it that way or it came out the wrong way. And let me sort of understand what they meant without attributing them as that person. Um, so we don't often look at the intent of other people, but we value the things that we say based on intent. Uh, certainly. Yes. You know, it's funny when you talk about bitterness, you know, for me personally, that's one of the best ways that uh, I've personally found to resolve some of that is, you know, when someone says something I think is just outrageous, like what on earth <laughs> that is just so out of line and et cetera, et cetera. I stop it. And sometimes, you know, hey, it's worth just acknowledging and addressing and digging into it. But other times it's not. But uh, if it sticks with me, that's kind of what I think is like, well, hey, there have been times I've said things I didn't quite mean to that came out wrong and I regret it and felt like, oops, I made a mistake. And they too very well may be experiencing those same emotions like, oh, man, <laughs> that is not what I meant yeah. to say there. I mean, it was really funny. Just the other day, I saw some, you know, two people, we were we were having this this conversation, a couple of us were having this conversation. And one person said something that was like, so out of left field that we all were like, whoa, wait, where did that, where did that come from? And some, and one other person was like, was like, whoa, where did that come from? I know you didn't mean it in that way. Maybe it totally must have come out. Like just giving that person the benefit of the doubt and sort of like laughing with that person being like, that was so out of left field that you can't have meant it that way. And then like, what did you, what do you mean? Like, and then that other person was like, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I totally didn't mean it that way. Like, that's a real, and then they sort of clarified, right? So who knows? They could have meant it that way. 
But in a really benign way, we gave that person an opportunity to like learn, to realize like, oh, I shouldn't say things in that way. Or so, so, so it could have just come out the wrong way. And then we, we gave them in a really safe way, a way, a, a, a you know, a, a, a way for them to clarify. But even if they did mean it in that way, it also gave them an opportunity in a very safe way to kind of understand and have this dialogue with us. And that's really what getting at these really deep, rich, interpersonal sort of interactions is all about, is like understanding and kind and coming to this point of recognition um, and overlap and, and shared sort of experiences and values. That's where you really start to enrich the lives of other people and, and really show where you can provide value. Uh-huh. Well, Laura, tell me anything else you want to make sure to mention before we shift gears and hear about some of your favorite things. Yeah. I mean, I just think one of the, the things that I always sort of emphasize is that when we're trying to sort of shift the perceptions and the stereotypes of others and flip these, these, these perceptions in our favor, you know, I often get the question, which is, well, you know, it just feels like it feels manipulative. It feels strategic. Like, you know, I don't like when other people, um, sort of do that and, and, and act manipulative. And I really don't want to do that either. And what I always point out is that this is something that's very different. This is about, you know, people are going to have perceptions of you, regardless of whether you guide them to who you authentically are or not. So it's actually much more authentic and much more real and not strategic at all when you are guiding these perceptions and you're not passively letting others write your narrative. You're writing your own narrative and guiding people to who you really are. And that's where you get the much richer and the much more authentic sort of relationships. Mm-hmm. Excellent. Thank you. Well, now could you share with us a favorite quote, something you find inspiring? If I had to pick just one, um, recently I, I, I love um, keep the main thing, the main thing. And what really is like behind that is like, no, you, you know what the main things in your life are, the things that really are important, the things that, that really drive you and the things that, um, that, that, that you feel like are worth fighting for. But we often get caught up in things that are more immediate or things that demand more of our attention. Um, and we lose sight of what that main thing is. And how about a favorite book? You know, I, I write nonfiction, but I love to read fiction. There's just something about, you know, um, about fiction. So, um, I love when the legends die is one of my favorites. Um, because, because of when Dixie is another, of my favorites, these are sort of like the young adult books that really like impacted me. I love girl in translation, um, which is like a really powerful story about identity. Mm-hmm. And how about a favorite tool? Something that you use to be awesome at your job. <laughs> I use the timer functionality on my phone a lot to keep me, to keep me organized. Um, it's really easy to get off course. And so sometimes I'm like, okay, I have 30 minutes to do this. And if you set your timer for 30 minutes, you sort of focus and you're like, I'm not going to, I'm not going to work on this for longer than 30 minutes. So I better get this right. So I use the, I mean, it's such a simple, um, sort of thing. I, I tend to use really simple tools. Um, and, trying to leave, try and leave the more in-depth things to the projects I'm working on, the, the papers, the writing that I'm trying to do, um, and so on and so forth. Oh, thank you. Yeah. And how about a favorite habit? 
I have one that's really aspirational. Um, I, I really, I really want to spend like 10 minutes every morning, um, meditating and just thinking through and just having like silence. Um, I've been really, really bad at that. Um, so I can't say that that's a favorite habit, but it's one that I see is very valuable and I'm really working on. And is there a particular nugget you share that really seems to connect and resonate with folks? They quote it back to you often. One of them is hire slow, fire fast. Um, and it applies mm-hmm. to entrepreneurship very much so because, you know, as you're growing your company very quickly, the tendency is to hire very quickly. Um, and it sort of destroys a lot of companies because you're bringing on lots of the wrong people, but yet you feel like you have to. But it also applies in life a lot too, which is like, we're really, we, we're not as careful about, about sort of pruning the things in our life that are not good for us. Um, and instead we try and bring on lots of things that we think are going to help us without knowing that we've already have all of this other stuff that's going on that's kind of in- interfering. And so it's like, get rid of the bad, you know, fire quick, fire fast, get rid of those things and then hire slow, being really careful about what you introduce, whether it's habits or people or, or experiences, um, being really methodical and, and, and thinking, not even methodical, but being really intentional about, about how you do that. So that's, that's one of them. You know, another one that I, I say a lot that I used to say a lot in my entrepreneurship class is like, you know, you got to stop the bleeding. And, um, you know, a lot of times we think about all of these bigger, more macro level issues, but we're not, focusing on like stopping the bleeding, you got to stop the immediate bleeding. And then as you're doing that, sometimes you're discovering and you're figuring out. So you have to stop the bleeding, but you also have to look at what's the root cause. Um, and, and so both of those are, are really important. Uh-huh. And if folks want to learn more or get in touch, where would you point them? Yeah. Um, so on my website, laurahuang.net, there's lots of resources, how to's. There's a downloadable guide to finding your edge that has strategies and tips um, that, that you can find for, you know, exercises for how you can do exactly some of the things that we've been talking about. I'm also on a variety of different social media. I'm on Twitter, Instagram, um, Laura Huang LA, um, is my handle on Twitter, Instagram, and a bunch of other things, Facebook, um, you know, LinkedIn, all of those sort of things. Mm -hmm. And do you have a final challenge or call to action for folks looking to be awesome at their jobs? Yeah. I mean, the call to action is really just practice this, know that you can do it and share with us, share with us your experiences of how you've been able to flip these stereotypes and obstacles in your favor. All right, Laura, thanks so much for taking this time and good luck in forming your edge. Thanks so much. Take care. Appreciate it. I really appreciated Laura's take about reflecting on bitterness and sort of wounds and sore spots that stick with you because that can turn into advantage when you realize, oh, there's a core value here. There's something that I'm really passionate about or it's important to me. And one thing that comes to mind for me in the context of being awesome at your job, I recall I had a summer internship and I was going to start it a little bit late. So I, I emailed the intern coordinator and this was a pretty robust internship program that they created at this Fortune 500 company. I emailed the intern coordinator, who was really pretty cool. I liked her. And I told her in advance, hey, you know, I'm going to be starting a few days later. So it looks like that's cool with everybody, blah, blah, blah. He's like, and I don't think there was any response or knowledge. I was like, okay, I guess that's covered. And so then when I got my first paycheck, 
I noticed that I had been paid for a full paycheck. And I thought, well, I, I did not earn a full paycheck. I actually started several days late. So uh, this is not appropriate. It's uh, unjust that I receive <laughs> this amount of money. So I guess I have some naivete, some idealism, but uh, well, I'll finish the story. So I, I email and say, hey, you know, I'm so sorry. I, I, maybe we're on the same page. You know, I started later. So it looks like I got the full paycheck. And by my calculations, I should be paid, you know, a few hundred bucks less here. And... <laughs> And I got an email back from her said, no, Pete, you weren't on the same page. And it's like she went into some details about how I did a bad job of communicating and I was unprofessional, et cetera. And so uh, I'm a little raw still (laughs) just talking about it. And I think what that points to, so yeah, sure, fair enough. You know, there's probably some valid feedback in there. Like maybe I could have double or triple checked to make sure this was totally kosher instead of just assuming it was all good. That's one of my uh, points of weakness. But more than that, in talking to my buddies, like, wait a minute. So you said, I got paid too much. You brought that to her attention and then she yelled at you for it. Like, yeah, basically. It's like, this story makes no sense to me on so many levels. (laughs) But it really got me to thinking about how it's very important to me that my time is being spent in valuable endeavors and that there is sort of justice in terms of how sort of compensation is flowing and resources are not wasted. Like I felt that they've wasted money on me inappropriately and uh, it didn't sit well with me. But they didn't fix the error, so I took their money. It was fine at the end. But that tells you something in terms of, hmm, this is a very unusual story and it's odd that it sort of sticks with me this whole time. It tells me something about kind of a really core value and piece of me and how that could turn that into into a strength. Wow, you know, like we might call that um, integrity or efficiency or your work. Well, we might do some more reflection here because it's kind of nascent. Thanks, Laura. Got the wheels turning. But uh, it really points to something. So don't let that make you bitter. Like, I can't believe that she said that. But let it make you better in terms of, huh, there's really something here that's core to me. And let's explore that and then deploy that. And win, win, win. So thanks, Laura, for getting my introspection wheels turning. Uh, Hopefully she did the same for you. Again, the show notes, the transcript, the links to items we've referenced are at awesomeatyourjob.com slash ep542. Kevin already, hope you'll push subscribe. We got Britt Andriata coming back. She is talking about how to learn real big <laughs> in terms of presenting so that it is more digested and people are learning and then absorbing more learning as you are engaged in activities and building your career and skills. So good stuff. Hope to catch you there. Peace. Thanks for listening. To get the most out of the show, we recommend two key things. First, check out the extra resources at awesomeatyourjob.com. You can find this episode's transcript and links, as well as the perfect episode for your situation. You can search the full text transcripts of hundreds of episodes or explore episodes tagged by topic and competency covered. Second, subscribe to the podcast and get future episodes automatically. You can subscribe by telling Siri and several other smartphones and speakers, subscribe to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast or by tapping subscribe in your podcast player of choice. If you'd like some extra help figuring out podcasts and how subscriptions work, visit awesomeatyourjob.com slash subscribe for guidance. Hope to catch you on the next episode of How to Be Awesome at Your Job. 
Why? Why? If you Why? have T-Mobile 5G home internet, you might be hearing this Why? a lot. Why? Every time your internet slows down during the busiest hours. Why? Why? Because your network gives priority to cell phone users. Why? Why? Good question. Why not switch to Cox Internet with two times faster download speeds than T-Mobile 5G home internet during peak hours? Okay. Stop the whys and visit cox.com slash 5G home for details. T-Mobile prioritizes certain T-Mobile phone users over home internet users during times of congestion. 